Hi there. So this isn't a normal episode as we would typically do it. It's a bonus episode! Hooray! <laughs> what are you laughing at? <laughs> so what is this bonus episode about? You have told me pretty much nothing. Well, we're going to go into some of the basics of genetic diseases themselves. Okay. So I thought we'd just get back to basics. Yes, please. My poor non-science brain needs help. Okay, so there are four different types of genetic diseases. All the ones that we've been covering in the current episodes have been Mendelian ones. Can you remember what those are? No, because I always just start thinking about Gregor Mendel's peas and then I get distracted and can't remember what it means. <sighs> it's when you have a condition that is caused by a mutation in one gene. As opposed to lots of genes? Yes, oh. that's another example. So with all of ours, we've had one gene that we've associated with a specific illness? Mm-hmm. That's a Mendelian disorder. Okay. So these can either be dominant, recessive, or, as we have yet to have seen, codominant. Codominant? That's where each gene contributes to a feature. So a good example of this could be hair colour. And this also happens with flowers a lot, where you might have a white rose and a red rose, and then you get a pink rose. Like when I breed my flowers on Animal Crossing? Yes, if Animal Crossing has to be the way that you understand genetics, I will go with it. <laughs> so some examples are cystic fibrosis, sickle cell, and also Huntington's disease, which we'll discuss in a later episode. Okay. Now, there are three other types of genetic diseases that you can also get. They are called chromosomal disorders, multigenic disorders, and epigenetic disorders. So we'll discuss chromosomal first. Okay, I assume it has something to do with your chromosomes. Yes. I'm proud of me. So, chromosomal disorder is caused by there either being too many chromosomes, too few, or some structural issue with the chromosome itself. That seems like a lot of things. Okay, so missing a chromosome, like, is it Down syndrome? No, Down syndrome is oh. where you have one too many. Oh, okay. So either way, you don't have your your pairs of chromosomes. One of them's missing a friend? So either you have one chromosome when you should be having two of that kind, you have three chromosomes when you should be having two, or... Your chromosomes are malformed. So, so what do you mean by malformed? So it might be all tangled up and then you can't get the genes as effectively from the chromosome because the chromosomes have to unwrap in order for the gene to be interpreted. Okay, so it might have a knot in the middle? Yeah, that's, that's an analogy we can work with. So, as I mentioned earlier... Down syndrome is a well-known example of a chromosomal disorder, and in this case, it's when you have a third copy of chromosome 21. Okay. As I mentioned before, you have 23 pairs of chromosomes. Your sex chromosomes are the 23rd pair, so the X and the Y. As for everything else, they're just numbered chromosomes, and they come in pairs. The next genetic disease is what's called a multigenic disorder. Multigenic, so it affects... Lots of genes on different chromosomes? Yes, so it's a complex disorder with at least two genes mutated. 
Okay. So it could be two, it could be many, and it could be that interplay of all of those mutations that causes the disease, but also causes the type of that disease. So these are often more variable. Now, a good example of this is Crohn's disease. Obviously, I mentioned that one because I have a personal stake in it. For those listening who don't know, I am actually a Crohn's disease patient, and there could be many, many genes associated with why I have this condition. So basically, the doctors are very confused. Yes, and I could have a whole different host of genes that are mutated compared to someone else. So they may have 10 of them that are mutated, I might have 3, or I might have 30. Who knows? I have not seen my DNA for this. My DNA has been taken, but I have not seen it. <laughs> and now the last one. This is where things get a little bit more complicated. Epigenetic disorders. I feel like I see that word thrown around a lot in the media, but I don't know what it means. Okay. Now, some people would not include epigenetics for this, but I think you should because it's still to do with your genomes in a way. So epigenetics is how a gene is interpreted. So if you imagine that you have an architectural schematic for a building, that's what the genome is like. The epigenetics is how the architect looks at that schematic and makes the building. Okay. So if you have a gene that's perfectly fine, but you misread it and it causes a problem, that could be an epigenetic disorder. Okay, and do you misread the gene in the same way every time? Normally, uh, there'll be some particular dysfunction. So a common form of epigenetic disorders are specific cancers, where your cell has lost the ability to interpret a gene that tells the cell to kill itself when it's growing out of control, and therefore it just continues to grow out of control. Okay, so what is it that reads genes, and are those things that read the genes not made by the genes? So those things can vary depending on what's in your environment sometimes. So this is why certain tissues, why you have the same DNA in basically every cell in your body, but you get different tissues. So remember how I mentioned transcription factors in an earlier episode? Yeah, so those are the things that read your DNA? They facilitate transcription. Transcription is when you turn DNA into RNA, and then RNA becomes a protein. Okay. So general, that's the, the simple three-step process. DNA to RNA to protein. Yes. Okay. And that RNA is known as the messenger RNA, because it sends a message out to make that protein. Okay. Now, if a transcription factor doesn't work properly, it will not allow the body to make copies of this messenger RNA from the gene. So therefore, you're not sending a message out, even though you have the instructions. Okay. So it's like if your signal collapse, if your phone signal collapses, you might have all the information you need to tell your friend, but you can't send the message. Okay. So something's just going wrong with the transcription factors. Yeah. And that's one form of epigenetic disorders. This is in a very extremely complicated area. I'm only going to mention one other type, which is when you get that mRNA, you may have heard of splicing. So splicing is when the cell gets that messenger RNA and then it rearranges it based on the needs of the cell. If that's not working properly, you might be making the wrong thing from that gene. Okay, your gene is still correct, 
you're still reading the gene correctly, but then it's reading things in the wrong order. Yes, and these are often caused by environmental stresses, epigenetic things. They are often a result of the environment because your gene is not changed. Okay. So kind of like how when people are told that smoking increases the risk of cancer, one of the ways it can do it is to damage DNA. The other way it can do it is to affect how your body repairs and interprets DNA. And if it's not interpreting the DNA properly, it might become cancerous. Whoa. Are epigenetic factors inherited? So some of them might be. However, epigenetics is a very complicated area that I do not fully understand, so I will not go any further than that. Okay. So you've just told me about a load of different types of genetic diseases. Give me their names again. Mendelian, chromosomal, multigenic, and epigenetic. So in that order, one gene, chromosomes, many genes, no genes. Okay. So are all of those hereditary? Some of it depends on the condition. So with Mendelian disorders... Why is there never a yes and no answer? <laughs> because that's how science and life works. Oh. Biology is the science of life, so double down. Oh. <laughs> so with Mendelian conditions, mostly yes. They are mostly hereditary. Cystic fibrosis is a good example of that. Huntington's is a good example of that but not always. Some exceptions include haemophilia B, where you might get a random mutation, or neurofibromatosis, where you will very likely get it because of a random mutation. Okay. With chromosomal disorders, sometimes it is hereditary. So a family member may have an additional copy of a chromosome, and they then might pass on two copies of the chromosome into the sperm or the egg that then you know, becomes fertilized and becomes the child. Okay. However, a lot of the time, this actually just happens as a developmental issue. And this is part of the reason why they warn um, women that the chances of having Down syndrome increase if you get pregnant after a certain age. So a lot of the time, you will not have the condition or have a running family history of the condition to pass on a chromosomal disorder. But... If it's a structural issue with the chromosome, it's more likely to be hereditary. Okay. With a multigenic one? Yes, definitely. What type of that illness you get and whether you get that illness is variable. So, as with mine, having Crohn's disease, there is a chance that it definitely runs in my family. There are mutations in it, but I'm the first person to get it. There's a 15% chance that my siblings might get symptoms for it, and there's a reasonable chance that any children I have might have it but there's no guarantees that anyone will. And that's because, so when you have a Mendelian disease, the probability of passing on those genes is down to just the probability of getting that one specific gene. With a multigenic disorder, it'll be all of those probabilities together of getting the exact right combination of genes to cause. Yes. With multigenic, you've got the chance of each of them that you might get it, and then the chance that those different mutations will interact with each other to cause the disease. So it's a lot more complicated, and depending on how many factors are needed, it gets infinitely more complicated. So, so the pile of genes you have that have caused the disease have been inherited from your parents, but 
you've gotten different genes from each of them, and you don't know which ones you got, so you can have the disease even though your parents haven't. Yeah, it's like going through your parents' attic. There are a whole load of things you wouldn't expect to find that, until you look, you notice. Okay. Now when we look at epigenetic disorders, typically these are not inherited. And the reason being that they are typically a result of the environment. Okay. Because you inherit the genes themselves normally, but you don't inherit the method of interpreting them because a decent amount of how it's interpreted is encoded in your genes. But environmental stresses can change how that's interpreted. So with all those different types of genetic diseases, how common are they? How likely is it that you have a genetic disease? Well, if you look at mutations alone, about 20% of the global population have mutations linked to genetic diseases. 20? So one-fifth? One in five people have a mutation that is linked to a genetic disease. That seems really high. Well, yeah, but when you imagine that, for example, with sickle cell, having one copy is advantageous in an area with malaria, it makes sense that these things aren't as rare as you might initially assume. Okay, so we're not really talking about the probability of a disease, we're talking about the probability of a genetic mutation. Yes. And when you go to the actual diseases themselves, it varies, obviously, depending on the type. So, from the Mendelian diseases, if you have an autosomal dominant condition, so only one copy is needed for you to be ill, then you have between three and nine in a thousand people getting one of any of those diseases. For an autosomal recessive, where two copies are needed, like with cystic fibrosis, you have between two and two and a half in every thousand getting one of any of those conditions. Obviously, it's less common because it's harder to get both copies than getting one copy. With an X-linked, so those are the uh, sex-linked diseases, you have between 0.5 and 2 per thousand getting the condition. Okay. When we look at chromosomal disorders, you're looking at between six and nine in a thousand people getting a chromosomal disorder. Um, I cannot tell you why there, there's that particular prevalence, and I'm not sure if anyone could reliably tell you either. Huh. For a multigenic disorder, it's actually between 20 and 50 in a thousand. And probably part of the reason that this is so much more common is that people are living longer, so they're more likely to actually display symptoms. We've gotten better at diagnosing these conditions, and that's probably the biggest one. There are many conditions that you wouldn't necessarily be able to diagnose a while ago. Okay, so, so, so it's hard to get any firm numbers on these kind of things as we, because the science is developing so fast and we're starting to characterize diseases that we never really figured out were their own thing before, and people with very severe illnesses are able to live much longer. Yeah, and we're no longer putting things off as failure to thrive or weakness or just being sickly. We're able to go into more depth to work out why someone has these symptoms rather than just acknowledging that they have the symptoms. And, you know, this is a good thing because as scientists, we should never stop. We should accept that we don't know everything because if we don't accept that, 
and we assume that we do know it all, then science just stops. But science is good. Yeah, there's a lot of benefits from it, so it's worth continuing that research, and even with these conditions, it's often worth narrowing down the subtypes because you can treat people better, more personalised care, if you've ever heard of that one. No. So with personalised care, one of the ideas is that you analyse someone's DNA, and then you can work out which treatments they're more likely to respond well to. Oh. So for example, with cancers, you might be able to say, okay, they have XYZ genes, and that means that this chemotherapy is going to cause less damage to the rest of their cells. So we'll give them this one rather than the other one. Oh, wow. And that's something they're already doing? It's something that we're in the early stages of. But hopefully, as things progress, we will get better at it. How cool. So we usually go into a little bit of history. Yeah. Because we're not looking at a specific disease. When did... In general, when did we figure out that there were these different types of disease? Well, the earliest one that we were able to characterize properly was the uh, Mendelian disorders. Gregor Mendel and his peas. Yes. He did not discover them himself, though. He was scientifically minded, but he was not a scientist. He was actually a priest. Oh. But he did write a lot of things that were very helpful to research and science, and Honestly, it was too early for him to be able to link this. Okay, so after Mendel, when did they figure it out? So, it's going back to sickle cell disease. That was the first genetic condition to be associated with a mutation in a gene. And that was done by Linus Pauling in 1949. A few years before Rosalind Franklin managed to take X-ray crystallography images of DNA so that we could interpret what the structure of DNA itself was. So before that, we knew that diseases could be inherited. Yes. We, we could see that diseases ran in families. But we couldn't say, this gene is going to cause it, and you've inherited it through this route. Okay. So that was the first Mendelian one. For chromosomal ones, it was a little bit later. Down syndrome was the first chromosomal disorder to be characterised properly, and it was characterised by Jerome Lejeune. And this was in 1959. Really? So it was another 10 years before we were able to say these chromosomal issues are what's causing a particular illness. That feels very recent. It seems like it would have been easier to notice an extra chromosome than to isolate an individual tiny gene that caused a disease. I guess, but at the same time, someone has to go and find people with these conditions that happen to be chromosomal and look at their DNA to see the chromosomes and see that there's an extra one. And that could take a very, very long time. So with some of this, it's a combination of intelligent experimental design and luck. Out of interest, when you, as a scientist, how do you look at DNA, because I always imagine it in my head in the way they show in science textbooks. You know, you have the chain and you have like a big line of chromosomes. Well, it depends on how you want to look at it. If you want to look at chromosomes, the best time to look is when cells are getting ready to divide because they line up. Okay. So you can look at them under a microscope when you do that. Um, If you want to look at them in higher detail, you might use something like Uh, scanning electron microscope, which basically fixes the cells into position. 
it coats them with gold and then you fire an individual beam of electrons at them and you just work your way along to get the pixels for each part for the image. And if the cell is dividing, you can see, the see a bunch of little pairs? Yes. Wow! As for observing DNA in other ways, you have things like sequencing, where you use a computer to interpret a uh, chemical process that you do. I'm not complicating it any, any more than that. To work out, how, uh, work out how many A, T, Gs, and Cs, and in what order they are. Okay. So after chromosomal disorders, the uh, next one to be characterized was actually the epigenetic one, at least that I could find information for. And this was colorectal cancer, and it was Feinberg and Vogelstein who characterized this in 1983, and they were able to work out what epigenetic changes resulted in the colorectal cancer that they were observing. So this is the first thing they figured out was happening differently to people even though they had the same genes? Yes. Okay. Now, I wasn't actually able to find when the first multigenic disorder was characterized as being associated with multiple genes. This just could be that no one's bothered to characterize the dates of that sort of thing's discovery. And otherwise, in order to do that, I would have to individually go through every multigenic disease I could find and find out when they were characterized to have gene mutations associated with the disorder, which, given that they are quite complicated diseases, also means that they have quite complicated histories. So at some point in the last, like, 50 years? Yeah, is this would definitely have been sometime between the Mendelian ones being discovered in 1949 with sickle cell and the 2000s. Okay. Is there a difference to how we treat all these different types of diseases? Uh, yeah, there are some differences. So you've heard me mentioning gene therapy a lot. Yeah. And gene therapy is very good, but there are limitations to it. So gene therapy works very well for Mendelian conditions because there's one gene that you're working with. So you change how that functions, that's fine. With multigenic ones, it can work on it, potentially. There if aren't... you happen to have figured out the right gene to fix. Yeah, what you might have to do is you might just have to change the activity of an unmutated one to compensate for the mutations that exist in multiple other genes. However, there isn't an example that's made it through trials and stuff. It's just theoretically possible. So at the moment, with a multigenic disorder, you just have to manage symptoms. There's no cure for anyone who has a multigenic gene disorder, unless it's something that you can use stem cell transplant of some sort for to treat. Okay, what about chromosomal? I would guess that they're much harder to treat because they have a really big impact on people's development, right? They can do. The uh, main issue with chromosomal ones is that you only manage the symptoms. You, you can't, can't just give somebody an extra chromosome. Yeah, or remove a chromosome or change the structure of their chromosome. That would, you would never get an ethical approval to do that. Because who knows what would happen. It's unlikely that that would ever get ethical approval um, without some serious developments in technology. So that's at best very long time in the running, at worst never. Okay. 
As for epigenetic ones, there are a few ways to treat them. You can use drugs to treat the epigenetic mechanisms. So some types of chemotherapy can do that. And also antidepressants can sometimes. Whoa. So because, for example, increasing the amount of serotonin in your body can change how certain cells function and then the signals that they send, that can then change how they transcribe their DNA. Huh. And then they can make other factors that can then help. Okay, so there, there are ways to just change other chemicals in your body that can counteract epigenetic factors or correct them? Yes. Otherwise, again, managing the symptoms. Unfortunately, with a lot of genetic-based conditions, the best we have is managing the symptoms. And that's because of the difficulty of researching the condition. Obviously, they're very complicated in a lot of cases. And also the difficulty of ethics when it comes to changing anything gene-based. Yeah, the, the fact that we have the technology available now to identify specific genes and change them is really scary for a lot of people because it can be misused very easily. And who has the power to decide? Yeah, definitely. And I think with that quite somber note, that Big ethical questions. That marks the end of the bonus episode. Ooh, I feel very scienced. I'm glad that you do. And with that, we use our regular sign-off. Be careful who you judge, because you can't see the genes, so don't expect to see the illness. Goodbye. Bye. As always, the music for this podcast is produced by William Kitchener Music. 